you can do client work and find your client's voice all day long. Um, but you have to be producing your own stuff, whether it's writing or podcasting or making videos, um, or tweet storms or <laughs> LinkedIn posts, whatever it is that you do, you just have to like put pen to paper, voice to microphone and start creating. Welcome to creative elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to Creative Elements. I hope you're having a great day, a great week, a great life. When you start offering creative services, whether that's graphic design, website development, copywriting, photography, and so on, you will hear one piece of advice repeated over and over again. You need to specialize. And as creatives, we resist this. We resist the advice to specialize. We're naturally talented, curious people. Why should we pigeonhole ourselves and focus in on one area? But as much as I resist it too, specializing is a really good idea. If you were having a heart issue, would you rather go to a general doctor or a heart specialist? We want to work with specialists. When someone specializes, we are more confident that they know what they're doing and that we can trust them. And because of that, specialists work with bigger clients and make more money too. They're harder to compete with and they win bigger projects. In my freelancing school courses, I have a lesson on specialization, and I use today's guest, Val Geisler, as a case study on why specialization is a great idea. Val calls herself an email geek who focuses on email copywriting for DTC, that's direct-to-consumer, and SaaS companies, that's software as a service. She helps these companies better retain their customers, which of course means more money for that company. If the customer sticks around longer, keeps getting emails from you, keeps buying your products, you're a more valuable customer to that company. Val is the founder and CEO, that's chief email officer of Fix My Churn, With an obsession for customer communication, Val has spent over a decade inside companies from nonprofits to seven-figure businesses to tech startups. She brings her background in content creation, customer experience, and digital strategy to her clients every day. And she's worked with some of the best, including Stripe, Buffer, Egghead, Aweber, InVision, and Podia, just to name a few. She really made a name for herself by publishing email teardowns. These are in-depth analytical looks at the emails some of your favorite brands are sending and explaining why they are successful and often where they fall short. There are a lot of interviews with Val talking about specialization and copywriting in particular, but I wanted to share more of her story to finding online success at all. You see, her story probably doesn't start where you expected. In this episode, we talk about trading the corporate ladder for a spiral staircase, how her background in theater and wedding planning prepared her for writing emails, imposter syndrome, and how believing that everything is figureoutable has allowed her to create a successful online business. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. But without further ado, let's hear from Val. I'm going to use this opportunity now that I have you on record to ask a question I've always wondered and I've never asked, Hmm. which is where did the handle Love Val Geisler come from? (laughs) Initially, it was because Val Geisler was taken on 
Facebook. And I was using Facebook for my business a lot at the time. I don't really at all anymore. So I knew people did like the in front of their name. I was like, I don't want to be the Val Geisler. That feels really pretentious to me. <laughs> um, and so then I thought like, this is a message from me. Love Val. Uh, so that's where it came from. Uh, and then it has like this kind of hidden meaning of that message thing, you know, like yeah. little love letters from Val. Yeah. And then it just, I like when things match. And so I wanted it to be the same handle across all platforms. And so that was it. Val Geisler was already a person on Facebook. And in the universe, probably. In the universe, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What is the breakdown of your email sign-off? Do you use love most of the time or do you use best? What is what is the breakdown? Uh, <laughs> uh, cheers, usually. You mean like when personal emails or when I'm like emailing my list? Both. I'd love oh. to hear how you think about both. Uh, when I email my list, it's usually just like a dash and then V because I like to feel friendly and like, you know me. By this point, if you're on my list, at, after the first couple of emails, you should feel like you know me pretty well. Especially, I mean, people will say after my welcome email, they feel like they know me pretty well. So that's how I sign emails to friends. So that's how I sign emails to my list. Clients, until they're a client, until we like have established a relationship, it's usually just like a dash and Val. When I was doing more like coaching in the creative business entrepreneur world, uh, I signed a lot of EXO. Oh, really? Yeah. I worked with a lot of female business owners, life coaches, uh, graphic designers, and it felt okay, but it doesn't feel like comfortable or even safe to sign emails like that anymore, especially working in software Mm. as Mm. a woman. I find myself strongly in the cheers camp. Although sometimes if I feel like it is a, uh, a pending client, arrangement, I'll fall back on best, which just feels more neutral to me. Yeah, best is more neutral. Um, I like to future pace things with pending client stuff and say, looking forward to it. Ah, ah. Uh, Because it's like, this is happening. Yeah. Conversion tactic. Yeah. Right. Right (laughs) right there in those uh, sales emails. But before we get deeper into Val's copywriting business today, I want to start with how she found herself running a business at all because I have a little inside information and I know that she actually started in theater. Uh, Yeah, it's a part of my spiral staircase of my career progression. So like, you know, some people have this corporate ladder. They just like climb and climb. I have a spiral staircase where it's kind of all going in the same direction, but the view looks a little bit different along the way. So I love that. Well, it's not mine. I stole it from Natalie Lussier. So Uh, (laughs) she... She mentioned it and I was like, that is good. I'm taking that. The theater thing was, that's what I majored in in college. Went to a conservatory program. So I was like serious about theater and uh, majored in stage management, which is the person who makes sure everybody is where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. All the lights happen. Everyone's wearing the right costumes, all those things. Basically like really good at Excel when you are a stage manager. I'm sure there's better software now, but... Uh, in 2000, it was yeah. just mostly Excel. Which you probably wouldn't expect if you're trying to get into theater that you're going to live and spend so much time in Microsoft Excel. Right, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of Microsoft Excel and Homestar Runner in our Yes! Office. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My sister had a strong bad email. Like one he read? Yeah, the strong bad email, Marzipan. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Emily C. from Ohio. 
The marzipan email is heard? Yeah. Okay, I have to cut in here. If you're not familiar with Homestar Runner, first of all, you need to look it up. But it was an animated comedy web series from the early 2000s. The whole thing was done in Flash. It was way before YouTube. We're talking about the time when Ebom's world was where you went to find funny videos online. Homestar Runner was the main character, this armless bird-type guy who wasn't very smart, but there were a bunch of other characters too, including Homestar's girlfriend Marzipan, who was basically a broom, and Strongbad. Strongbad was this villainous guy with a red mask and boxing gloves who answered actual fan emails every week in a segment called Strongbad Emails. These things were a staple of my childhood and probably my sense of humor too. I watch these things religiously every week with my sister Emily, who actually does the episode artwork for this show. I'm going to play that episode of Strong Bad Emails, number 59, because I'm sure it's going to come up again in future episodes. There once was a man named Email, and he did his best for a while. Strong Bad. So, if you're so good with the ladies, how come I never see you with any? The only female I've even seen sit into. <clears throat> the only female I've seen even near you is Marzipan. She doesn't seem to like you very much. Okay, bye. Emily C. Wow. What are you talking about, Emily? Marzipan can't keep her hands off of me. In fact, I had to change my screen name because she was bugging me so much. I'd be like trying to write an email like, Dear Dajit, and then doodly, it'd come up and I'd be like, close the window, doodly. Anyways, Dajit, I was going doodly, doodly, to ask you doodly, doodly, if I could borrow doodly, doodly, that big knife, doodly, doodly. And if that's not enough proof, just watch this. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I really don't like him at all. So, uh, is that another song about Homestar? No, it's about you. About being in love with me? That's disgusting. And I don't like your outfit. Well, I'm not telling you my new screen name. Well, I don't even know what a screen name is, so there you go. And if you'd please leave now, because I am tinkering with my guitar. Oh yeah, well... Say you like me. No, leave me alone. Say you like me? No. Well, then do you like Strongbad? No, you're just saying your name fast. Go away. What about the guy who's brothers with Strongman and Strongbad? That's still you. No. Then how about this one? Do you don't not dislike not Strongbad? Uh, I guess. See, I told you you love me. Oh, I knew it all along. Well, my friend Emily from Okio hears this. Oh, you know you love me. Whatever. Come on, Carol, let's rock. My sister's always been cooler than me. Every single episode of Homestar Runner was played in our office, in Steve Benjamin's <laughs> office. <laughs> I worked in theater for several years after I graduated. And then I got kind of tired of like looking for a new gig every couple of months, living in a new city every month or two, making brand new friends every single city. Um, it got old. And I wanted to just be in one place and I took an event management job. So I worked in the wedding industry at a botanical garden and that was kind of the same skill set. but I had a like one job that I reported to for a year plus, uh, you know, as long as I wanted to. And in my mind as a theater person, a year was a very long time to be in one job. So yeah, I, I just wanted to have like the same hairdresser more than once and go to the same dentist and, Things that I think people take for granted, but when you're traveling a lot, it makes a difference. Are most theater jobs that like inherently transient? Do most of them have to travel and follow like a touring group? 
Yeah. So I didn't even follow a touring group. I took a uh, contract to contract. So, um, for instance, I would be in, uh, Milwaukee for a month for a show. I'd go to Norfolk, Virginia for two months for a show. I'd go to Cincinnati for a month. And so each one was like, while you're working on the show, you're also arranging your next contract. Um, there's touring shows for sure. We've all seen those, but that's like, you work for one company, you do the same show over and over all the time. Um, mine was like, go to a place, rehearse a show for three weeks, do it for three nights and then leave and then do that all over again in a new city with a new cast. And are you living in a hotel? Yeah. Like an extended stay hotel. Um, sometimes they would have like corporate apartments or something that they would rent for us. One time we did like a house share thing pre Airbnb time. How did you learn the process of like finding new shows to get staffed on? Because that is very much like a, sounds like a client prospecting type activity. Yeah. Theater is very much a world of relationships and like who, you know, matters almost more than what you can do. And, and also this, what is on your resume matters more than what you're actually capable of. So, uh, when I was in school, I did a lot of, I did a lot of musicals and that was because some of the se- more senior stage managers were working on operas. I really wanted to do operas, but cause I knew that in the outside world, opera is where the money is. So I really wanted to do operas in school, but I didn't get a chance to do very many. And then right when I graduated that summer, I worked at a place called Chautauqua Opera Theater in upstate New York, in Chautauqua, New York. Chautauqua Opera Theater does like one opera and then all the rest is musicals all summer long. It's called an opera theater. But the second the word opera was on my resume, if I sent my resume to an opera company, I was more likely to get a gig than if that Chautauqua opera wasn't on there. So, and then like the production manager's uh, recommendation. And so it's a lot of like asking other people to call their friends. And um, I ended up on a email list of uh, like a senior opera stage manager who would send out, she'd get asked to, Hey, do you know anyone who can be an assistant stage manager in Santa Fe? And she'd send an email out to everybody. So a lot of just networking and building relationships and, and then, yeah, doing a good job once you get there so you can do that. Right. But up front, it's a lot of like, what's on your resume uh, production wise. Oh, you've done Carmen before. Great. We'll hire you. Cause we're, you're, we're doing Carmen and like how many different ways can you do Carmen? So I'm sure that hasn't like totally left your world. So like what musicals do you watch now and what do you listen to most? Well, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old now. So we listen to a lot of Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, and I do uh, work really hard to like, if there's a musical version of a show, so Lion King, I make sure that they've listened to um, the musical version of Lion King because it's different, right? So we've listened to the cartoon, the live action and the musical version. We listen to Hamilton in our house and Greatest Showman is another big hit. So, but uh, opera wise, we we do listen to a fair amount of opera music. And um, I think a really good like primer opera is probably like Marriage of Figaro or a comedy of some kind. Um, those are, those are good for people who've never experienced opera before. All right. Marriage of Figaro. I'll check it out. Is opera backing audio for any type of activity for you? Work. Yeah, for sure. Really? Um, mostly because what's great. So for me, 
since I write mostly all day and you write a lot too, I don't know mm-hmm. how you do that. I can't listen to music with words that I know yeah. while I'm writing or I just end up writing that. So I listen to music in other languages. If it has words, I listen to a lot of French rap music, um, but also like opera is perfect for that because it's in French or Italian or Russian. And some, you know, uh, there's all kinds of opera out there. So if you don't know the show, which I know a fair number of them, then opera is great for it's classical music. It's good for your brain. And then you get that other language thing. So you're, you're not like ending up typing words that you're hearing. It's good. When we come back, we continue up Val's spiral staircase right after this. Welcome back. When we left Val, she was about halfway up her spiral staircase towards the copywriting career that she's known for today. So event management was weddings at the Botanical Garden. And then I worked for Marriott uh, for a little while at a at a hotel as their event manager. So I had like that corporate kind of experience too. So I went from nonprofit to corporate, very different environment. Um, found out corporate was not for me. And then um, while, while I was in my corporate job, I started doing yoga because I was miserable in my corporate job and uh, yoga made me happy. And I learned about Lululemon, which was at the time, not very much here in the US. And they were opening stores all over the place. And I was desperate to get out of my corporate job. And I basically just like went and I was in Virginia at the time and the regional manager was in DC. And I just went up to DC as much as I could and like build a relationship with her. And cause I knew what store she was at all the time and then convinced her to hire me as a store manager. Um, and so I opened a store in Richmond for them and the skill set, the, this is still part of the spiral staircase. It sounds like retail, right? Like, but really opening a store for Lululemon is about connecting a community, putting on events. Like when you're pre-opening, there isn't a store to run yet. Uh, so you're really just putting on events all the time, going to classes and connecting people who need to know each other, making sure that it really feels like a community and not a bunch of separate fitness locations. So that was really fun. And my event background really lended itself to running that. really strikes me that with the Botanical event company and with what you're describing here with Lululemon, sounds like you're getting a lot of very personal interaction with people, Yeah, which I'm sure like really sharpened your sword of understanding how to relate and talk to people, which oh is gosh. really at the core of what you do all the time now. Well, and then, you know, even going back to opera, like opera divas are, that's a real thing. And so learning how to deal with divas and tenors uh, and, uh, and then yeah, brides and in some cases, grooms, groomsmen are the worst to deal with, actually. Lots of telling groomsmen like, hey, you can't pee on that bush. This is a botanical garden. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so lots of like tough conversations <laughs> and... Yeah. And then connecting community, you know, having those, those interpersonal skills where it was so important. And I think I honed a lot of that in theater of having to create a new, you know, relationship every month with cast members. Um, as a stage manager, they have to trust you that you know exactly how the show operates, you know, and that when you tell them, no, you're supposed to be holding this other thing that they believe you. So you have to build trust really quickly. You have to build relationships to do that. So yeah, it's kind of all led me to running a business online and 
I, it's funny because I went from not wanting to go contract to contract in theater to now I go client to client as a business owner. So I kind of brought myself back to where I am, but I live in one place. So yeah. it's a nice, happy medium. So Val found herself coming full circle back around to working with clients, but now she's working with clients online on her own terms. She told me that going from theater and retail to very offline businesses to being one of the most sought after email copywriters around was all about knowing what she wanted and being confident that she could figure out how to get there. Marie Forleo says it and it's a hundred percent true. It's her book. Now everything is figure outable. That's kind of been my mentality basically my whole life is that I can figure it out. Um, when I started a business online, I was a virtual assistant, but I didn't even know that that was like a thing. Um, I just knew I had a bunch of friends who ran businesses in different cities and, uh, and they had all complained to me about things they needed done. And I was like, well, I don't, I've never really posted products to a Shopify site, but I can figure that out. I know what to Google. Maybe that's it more for me. It's like, I'm really good at Google. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's my personality trait. Good at Google. How much would you say your life is figuring out problems for the client versus figuring out your own problems of like, now I'm running my business and I want to get to X place and I need to figure out how to do that? Oh, it's like 80% my own problems. (laughs) I mean, figuring out problems for clients is I've basically systemized my business so much and kind of productized what, what I do that it's the problems for clients become really clear. Maybe in my first couple of clients, that balance was a little bit higher. But now that I work with a consistent client type over and over and I know the problems they're trying to solve and how we can get to the solution, for me now it's really about my own business and and like... How do we take this to the next level? Do we hire contractors or employees? Do we want to go to the next level? Do we want to be a company of one? How do you do sales when the client work needs to get done? All those things are problems that are constantly in my brain. So yeah, I'd say it's way more my own problems than other people's. Has it always been that way? Or have you made kind of a shift of being more proactive about thinking about where you're headed versus responding to the needs of clients? I feel like I'm a natural worrier. <laughs> I'm half Italian. It's in my blood to worry about things that I have no control over. So I feel like there hasn't been a shift, right? Like I've always worried about things that I probably don't need to be worried about right now. So no, it's, that's kind of always been my MO. What was the last thing that you did figure out that comes to mind as like a major thing that felt daunting at first, but you figured it out? Mm. Well, I would say that what I figured out on the surface level would be hiring an employee because I recently hired my husband onto my team and it used to just be me. But what I actually figured out was being willing to accept help because he actually has done a lot of the figuring out of how to hire him, <laughs> like all the payroll stuff and getting all of that set up. And I mean, maybe in a different situation, if it weren't your husband, then it's a different kind of scenario uh, where I would have had to actually figure all of that out. But uh, a lot of it has been like me letting him manage the operational side of the business and that ability that like, if you ask for help and accept it, that 
it might be done differently than you would have done it, but it's still okay. Yeah, it's it's like an extreme version of this this challenge. I think a lot of people have of a vulnerability of a work in progress. Like your business is a work in progress. Everything's a work in progress. And when you share that with somebody that even you're really close to, and you know that it's not perfect, and there are things that you know are flaws that you're already planning to fix, but you haven't done it yet. And you're like, hey, look at this. Tell me what you think of it. And you know it's going to be like the first thing they point out. It's really hard to do that and accept help and accept feedback. And in in your case here, I'm sure that is even more to the extreme. Yeah, I think it's the more important piece to have learned from saying like, oh, yeah, I know how to set up Gusto for payroll. Great. Um, But that's like that's definitely more figure outable than being able to accept help. Yeah. What is on your horizon for trying to figure out right now? It's a great question. I think, you know, my business is shifting into this more productized methodology. So instead of having custom solutions for every client and working through exactly what they need, really saying, hey, this is what we offer. These are the platforms we work on. Here's how the process works. And you can either take it or leave it. That's something that I'm still trying to figure out, both from a how do we actually productize this thing standpoint and from a like being able to tell customers essentially no, uh, right? By saying like, mm, if, if you aren't on this this platform, then we're not a good fit for you. Or if you want to skip portion one of our project, you know, then we're not a good fit for you. So being able to say no to people and know that that holds a door open for so many more by s- systemizing, productizing more, that's that's definitely something I'm trying to figure out. When we come back, Val and I talk about finding her own voice right after this. Welcome back to Creative Elements. There's never going to be a time when Val or any of us have everything figured out. But one thing Val has figured out is her own voice and writing style and how to marry that with her client's voice. So I asked her how other creators might be able to find their own voice, even if the work they do for clients isn't very public facing. You have to produce your own stuff, right? Like you can do client work and find your client's voice all day long, um, but you have to be producing your own stuff, whether it's writing or podcasting or making videos um, or tweet storms or (laughs) LinkedIn posts, whatever it is that you do, you just have to like put pen to paper, voice to microphone and start creating. I have a another friend, Jay, who has on his calendar every day for the first hour of his day, he writes whether or not he ever publishes it. And that's solely to work on his craft. You have to work on it. I used to not think of it as a craft, but it absolutely is. And it does take that consistency, you know, publishing a new onboarding teardown every single week helped me find that cadence and that tone. And and it wasn't even really like trying to figure out what kind of voice I want to embody, but it was really very much a pairing away of all of these like false voices I had taken on over the years and stepping into exactly how I want to talk. You know, those read the same way that we're talking right now. Yeah, uh, It's no different than I'm not writing like a formal white paper. Can you talk a little bit more and expand on that idea of these other voices that I've taken on? Uh, like taken on and then taken off? Is it like, are you saying doing work for a client and taking on their voice or trying to take on that voice? Or were you like 
posturing for this is what I want people to think I sound like or am? Yeah, so there's a little bit of both of um, you know working with clients and and getting in their voice and seeing how that kind of feels in my business. And then there's also the thing we all do of like, what do other people want me to be? Um, and especially when it comes to you're in charge of making your own money and you know putting food on your table, what do people want to pay for uh, is kind of a, th- a thing that went through my mind a lot. And even thinking about how I present myself online, when I started my VA business, I was interacting with a bunch of other VAs and they would say things to me like, well, in your in your headshots, you show your tattoos on your arms. And like, does that turn people off? Does that turn clients away? Do people say anything to you about it? And it was this was kind of the first inkling of like finding myself in all of it was me saying, you know, if it does, um, then that's not a client I want to work with. And if the fact that there is ink on my skin is an indicator of my ability to do my job posting products to your Shopify site, um, then we're going to have other problems along the line. So I think that that was kind of the original piece was just saying like, this is who I am. And then I, I went through evolutions with that because I definitely had, you know, like more buttoned up blazer type photos. And I mean, the blazer I wore in my headshot for the longest time I only ever wore it for that headshot. And now, you know, when I go speak places or when I take, uh, when I do photos or headshots or whatever, it's, it's like this shirt I'm wearing right now, you know, like I'm, I'd be happy to get up right now and go have a headshot taken because this is who I am. And, and that's, that's it. So you live in a world where a lot of your clients are creating products for customers and you are serving them. So on one hand, you have, this drive that everybody has of, I want to create and I want to create for me and I want to be true to me. And at the same time, you have to create content and work in the voice of clients who are making something to be purchased by someone else. So like, how do you just marry all these things together to say, this is when I'm being me and you accept me as I am. And this is when I need to be thoughtful about, you know, the jobs to be done framework that Fix My Churn goes with, or, you know, making something that, you know, people want. Yeah. And so first of all, people are hiring me because of my writing, right? So if you are hiring me, you know, you're not going to get AP style writing and um, very formal or even like super technical, or you also aren't going to get very goofy off the wall, right? You get a little bit of each and then uh, blend it in with some storytelling. And so there's, I always start with that mindset of like, they're hiring me for me and it's my job to understand their tone and voice. So, so that's where I think it's really important to put your own content out because that's how clients uh, can understand who you are and how you can help them. My friend Leanna is a very goofy writer. She had her whole business is punchline copy. She's all about telling jokes all the time and her clients hire her because they want to add more jokes into their business. People don't come to me for jokes. They come to me for metaphors and <laughs> storytelling. <laughs> And relationships. But yeah, I think that you have to, you have to put your own content out and then you do have to. So I always lean toward my voice blended with theirs. 
Um, because I'm also typically trying to break people out of like, they have these really stuffy product focused onboarding sequences, and I'm trying to break them out of that. And they know they need to break out of that. So I lean heavily toward what I would do if I ran that company and had that client, uh, or customer on the other end. And then they get to say like, eh, it still doesn't feel right. And we can pull it back. Um, but I always lean heavily toward what I would do if their end customer were my customer. I treat it like they, their business is my business. And it's true. The way that Val writes even her tweets sounds just like you were talking to her. In October 2019, Val published the complete guide to non-sucky SaaS transactional emails. And then that same day, she tweeted, quote, Publishing a post is like three weeks of gathering resources, writing and editing, two nights of sleepless thinking about more edits, six hours of uploading, reformatting, connecting content upgrade, two hours of sharing on social channels, 30 minutes of publishing the email, and 50 email replies saying, yeah, but... So I asked her what it feels like for so many eyes to be on you, and then to receive messages like that to something that you put so much time into. And it led us to a subject that we talk about a lot, imposter syndrome. Yeah, I've noticed that when I feel imposter syndrome my default response is um, being super defensive. So for instance, that transactional email post, um, one of the emails I got in response was like, yeah, but GDPR says you can't put marketing and sales content in a transactional email. And my gut response was like, I know, I know what GDPR is and that's not what I said. And go read the post again. You need to reread all 43 pages because that's not what I said. But instead, uh, you know, I just let it sit for a minute. um, And, you know, my actual response was like, totally understand that. And, and it's more like yes and instead of a but, right? So minute experience between you and I with improv uh, has really helped me personally in overcoming imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's it's been great because you can really use that yes and to say like, instead of the but, if I feel myself saying like, yeah, but then that's really where I'm feeling small and I can feel big and um, like I belong if I say yes, and, you know, in, in improv, if you walk into a scene and you want to like redirect the whole scene with a, but it can go off rails. And, um, if you're in front of an audience, they're kind of wondering why you're there in the first place. And everyone else on stage is wondering why you're there. And, and then you start to feel like, wait, why am I here? But if you go into a scene with a like, and, and I'm going to contribute to this thing that's already happening, then the audience comes along with you. Everyone else on stage comes along with you. And it's been the most useful tool for me to get out of that, that butt feeling. Yeah. That's an interesting analogy because in an improv world, you know, where you're on the stage and they're wondering like, who are these people and what are they doing up there? They're also already acknowledging that we are watching this person on the stage. You're there and they're paying attention and it doesn't really serve you to make it easier for them to question why you're there. Right. <laughs> you know, you just need to, right. you need to own that spot and say, I'm here for a reason. It doesn't matter if they understand what that reason is or not. And I'm going to do what I do really well. Yeah. Or bomb sometimes. Sometimes you bomb too. <laughs> you do. And, and 
your default mechanism takes over sometimes because you get scared. And so, you know, if your default is, but I want to do this thing or, but look at this over here, then that can take over. So it does take practice. I write off my improv classes as a business expense because I use it more in totally. business than anywhere else in my life. So yeah, totally. Um, how does improv play into parenting? Oh, so much because I like, I'm very much an introvert and I do not enjoy um, playing dolls in a dollhouse or building. I, I'm building blocks. I'm okay at, you know, playing make believe. It just doesn't come naturally to me. So improv has helped with that because I get to, you get to play an improv class and you get to that yes and comes in really handy because then when your kid goes, Mom, what if the car was a submarine? Then you get to be like, yeah, and that school bus is a shark. And, you know, that when you're driving down the road, it all of a sudden becomes a really fun game instead of being like, mm, cars aren't submarines. Sorry, kid. I absolutely love any opportunity I have to talk with Val. And the good news is, since her voice is so consistent online, I can feel like I'm talking with her even through Twitter. For creators looking to build their own path, I love the analogy of the spiral staircase. We're working our way upwards, it just may not be the shortest, most obvious, or direct path. But if Val's story proves anything, it's that whatever your experiences to this point have been, they are building you into the person that you can uniquely be, and people will hire you for that. You can follow Val on Twitter at LoveValGeisler or visit FixMyChurn.com. Those links, as well as a link to her complete guide to non-sucky SaaS transactional emails will be in the show notes. Thanks to Val for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork and the strong bad email for this episode. Thanks to Brian Skeel for mixing this show and also creating our music. If you like this episode, please tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, a review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.